0: I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of The Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to The Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. We're so excited today because we have a repeat guest who, by popular demand, is back. Um, So uh, Maha Athal is an assistant professor in global economy at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow. Um, And today we're going to be talking all about technology corporations, abortion, surveillance, um, and women and gender rights. So thank you so much um, for being here again with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Alina, for having me back. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, So maybe we could just talk, you know, a bit about you and your background. So I know, um, you know, last time we talked about tech companies and your sort of like journalistic work, but uh, around them, but I know you've also done some political campaigning. um, And so maybe we could begin by you just talking about like, why is abortion to you personally and politically Mm -hmm. and for like the rights of women um, more generally?
1: Sure. Um, so this is an issue. Um, it's, it's maybe one of my kind of like first formative issues of political consciousness. So I, um, I, I credit my mother here. So, um, my, my mother's a professional, um, feminist activist. And, um, when I was a very small child was working, um, closely with Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and kind of the core of the kind of liberal American feminist movement, um, on, uh, Women's economic empowerment, but also on reproductive rights, and and to a certain extent on the links between them, and was particularly involved in um, efforts at that time in the run up to what became the the Beijing Conference. Um, that if people have heard of that, what they probably remember is this very iconic photo of Hillary Clinton addressing the um, that conference. But that conference adopted a kind of international platform of gender equality goals, um, and in that was a, a reproductive rights. Plank. Um, not perhaps one that um, was as explicit uh, about some of these issues as we would have wanted it to be. Um, you know, it's a consensus document. Many conservative states needed to sign on to it. Um, but my mother and this organization had been involved in, in kind of the run-up to that in various other some, you know, summits before it drafting that language. So so I kind of grew up um with like abortion rights conversations as just part of the atmosphere. Um, And I think one of the things that now in retrospect feels really striking and important about that to me is I think probably most people as small children, there's a point at which you don't know where babies come from. And then you know where babies come from. And then at some point after that, you understand that sometimes people become pregnant and either don't want to be or it's not safe for them to be. And we have ways of dealing with that. Um, There's no progression like that for me. I don't remember a time where I knew about sex and didn't know about abortion because I knew about abortion so young. <laughs> um, so it's, like that was my sunset. Um so, so first of all, right, it's like a really long, deeply held, grew up, raised in the movement. Um, and one of the things that I think I should credit is that everybody, you know, including my mother would want me to say this, her, but also everybody she worked with, I think knew that while they were campaigning for these rights globally, that I don't think they felt that they were secure in the States. And they would always say, this is going to come back. Um, and we will have to relitigate this, and you have to be vigilant about this. And I remember thinking, as I think many kind of young millennial women did, um, like, this is over, right? Um, we've moved on to kind of other social justice issues. Um, and and obviously we were wrong. Um, and then kind of as an adult, um, as an undergraduate, um, you know, with the feminist organizations on my undergraduate campus, um, we used to sometimes go out Um, So, I I mean, I went to college in a progressive university town, but we would go out to um, smaller towns and cities outside where the environment was perhaps a little more hostile um, to do kind of escort work for patients um, at clinics, right? Where kind of anti-abortion protesters would turn up. Um, I went to college in Rhode Island. um, And one of the things that I think is unique about that environment is in other parts of the U.S., the the virulent kind of anti-abortion protesters would be mostly uh, evangelicals, um, in Northern Rhode Island and Southern Massachusetts, they would be mostly Catholics. Um, so slightly different kind of organizing context. Um, but that's probably where I came to kind of like abortion rights work as something that was personal. Um, and then of course, over the years, I've, I've known people that needed to get them. Um, so, and I think it's, I think everybody does, right. So it this so it becomes personal, um, over time, um, that way, Um, And then, you know, um, part of the way I think that I've come to know some people who have needed to get them um, is that in my career as an academic, um, I've been very involved in um, kind of broader feminist campaigning on university campuses, um, especially around um, sexual violence. Um, So, uh, um, and that's included both kind of public campaigning, organizing um, chapters of Reclaim the Night, things like that. Um, around kind of sexual violence that was taking place between young people, between students, um, but also um, very involved in leading kind of campaigning at, at universities that I've been at um, around sort of um, sexual violence and harassment uh, of students by faculty. Um, and and when you do that kind of work, I think you see very clearly how abortion rights fit into kind of a broader spectrum of, of feminist campaigning um, now. Uh, and it's not, I think... Um, you know, an issue that has just come back onto the agenda, I think it's kind of always been there. So I
0: wonder, because, you know, we're recording this kind of in the wake of, well, <laughs> quite a long time at this point, but, you know, in the wake of the Roe v. Wade overturning in the U.S. Um, and it's really funny, I feel like you're talking about um, feeling that abortion rights was not unsettled, but I definitely remember feeling like having traveled internationally, abortion was so much more of a contentious issue in the U.S. than it necessarily, like when I traveled abroad, I felt it was where it was like very clearly like, oh, this is progressive and this is not. So it's very odd kind of to see it like properly overturned, um, was it a year almost ago? Um, So I wonder for like a non-American audience, um, if you could sort of explain like what, is like what was Roe v. Wade? Why is it a right. court ruling? Why was Supreme Court able to do this? And then, kind of, what does that mean for the legal landscape now? Obviously, it doesn't mean that abortion automatically became illegal, but no. how within the American context is that kind of playing out?
1: Right. Um, so, I mean, the you know, why is it a court ruling? Right. This has been kind of a, a hotly contested, very controversial, right kind of thing within kind of the American feminist movement, but um, in the 1960s and 1970s, kind of during the American second wave, um, there was a debate about whether the feminist movement was ever strong enough to push through a, a legislative um, victory for abortion rights, right, to actually pass legislation, um, legalizing it nationwide. Um, and, you know, there were efforts made to do that. They weren't successful. And I and most of the leadership um, felt that they just did not have the votes to do that. Um, And that trying to do that would compromise other gains that they thought they were making. Um, And some of those gains, of course, they did make around, um, you know, kind of employment discrimination, um, you know, sexual harassment. And actually, that's a huge victory. And that sexual harassment is actually illegal in the United States. In most European countries, that is not the case. Um, You know, there needs to be some attempted assault before it's illegal. Um, uh, They also thought that they would get an Equal Rights Amendment um, to the American Constitution. Um, And that would have passed through legislative means. Right. Um, It needed to pass both, uh, you know, sort of um, Congress at a federal level uh, and um, a a majority of a three quarters majority of the individual state legislatures. And they came very close to that and then couldn't bring it over the line. And that, to some extent, would have allowed um, for, you know, kind of. Court orders enforcing that to cover certain types of reproductive rights as equal rights. So they thought they were going to get this legislatively. When that kind of collapsed, um, then they started to look at ways of kind of achieving right what they could through other means. And and civil rights litigation had been so important to other civil rights causes in the US in the run-up to that. Um, you know, important parts of the racial justice agenda had been achieved. Right through court orders, right desegregation had been enforced by kind of Supreme Court fiat, right? So, um, so there had always been kind of this mix, right, of of um, strategic litigation and legislation in kind of American social justice movements. That goes back kind of a long way. Um, And the the case that ended up, um, you know, kind of securing abortion rights to the extent that it was secured um, was essentially a medical privacy case. Um, that protected abortion rights on the basis um, that, you know, the woman was entitled to privacy. Um, so it was a, it was a married woman's case. Um, and there's all kinds of right, complicated intersections of, um, of that with rights. Um, but it was read as, as uh, you know, as covering kind of a broad right to medical privacy in this area. Um, now what that means, and one of the weird things about this kind of strategic litigation is that when you win a major lawsuit at the highest court within your jurisdiction, um, that court judgment overrides whatever legislation already exists underneath it. So that legislation then doesn't need to be repealed. It just kind of goes dormant. Um, So what happened when Roe was struck down is that the law in every state just reverted to whatever it had been before, unless the state had passed in the interim right? Some new laws. Um, so there were lots of states where before Roe, uh, abortion had already been legalized, and those states just reverted to that. And those are, you know, primarily uh, democratic controlled states in um, the Northeast and the, the Pacific Northwest. Um, then there was a range of states where there had been some pre-existing abortion restriction, where the law defaulted to that. And some of those states then became battlegrounds to pass, you know, new liberalizing legislation. Michigan is an example of that. Um, And then there are states where, in anticipation that this might happen at the legal level, um, Republican-controlled state legislatures had had bills kind of ready to go, um, where they had passed bills that they knew, when they passed them, couldn't come into effect because they were in defiance of the Supreme Court order, and they wanted them kind of in reserve to come into effect when Rome was struck down. Um, And those are the most restrictive because they had in part been passed almost with no scrutiny because they were not like really possible at the time that they were passed. So these are these kind of fetal heartbeat bills where the cutoff is very early, um, sometimes so early that this is before a time where somebody would know that they were pregnant. Um, And a lot of those came then automatically, right? Um, uh, onto the books. And then there are the states where new laws have been passed kind of since things were struck down. Um, and that has seemed to create an opportunity. Um, so it's, you know, it's a patchwork now, um, uh, you know, across across the country, and there's new legislation moving through. Um, and we don't even really have a, a comprehensive mapping, right, of what the um, of what the legal landscape is, and then this in-between category of laws that were passed while Roe was active, um, which were in some way in violation of Roe, but now become legal. Um, I think there's there's legal questions about the, the validity of that approach. There'll be litigation about those um, that kind of continues to move uh, through the system, whereas the laws that are being passed now, kind of post-Roe being struck down, are much more legally in the clear, unfortunately.
0: So I wonder, you know, there's a lot of stuff about um, what the state is doing, what state governments are doing. Um, and then kind of at the time of the ruling, again, there was sort of like a panic around period tracking apps,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which we had talked a little bit about before on the podcast. Um, but from from your perspective, where do um, the technology corporations or like non-state actors come in? I mean, I saw yeah. recently there's a story, you know, about a woman being prosecuted for an abortion and Facebook hands over her messages. So, so, you know, is it a privacy thing is, is what's happening just that, yep. that that's, that's being documented or how are these companies interacting, resisting, aiding, abetting? Um, and does, you know, both, does this change kind of in the international context um, nationally and then internationally? Mm. Lots of questions for you.
1: Lots of questions. Okay. Well, let's, let's take them, let's take them one by one. I mean, I, I think, Right. So I had also read this case um, and we can probably link to that right in the in the show notes of the woman who's being prosecuted on the basis of her Facebook messages. And I think it's, in fact, not only her, but also the person who assisted her. Right. It's the messages right with the person who assisted her to get, um, uh, you know, to be able to get treatment. Um, So. uh, and I think there's a case also with a with a husband who's suing somebody who helped his wife. Get, I mean, so so there started to be, again, on the basis of, of these messages. Now, I think that's kind of ironic because one of the things I think that has been very, you know, there's been a lot of like angst internally in the feminist movement post row about was it right to do it on these privacy grounds? And like it's, it's not a unequivocal right to an abortion. It's kind of crowbarred into, you know, a broad privacy right. Um, And, and, you know, and and in fact, a protection from state surveillance uh, that, you know, that's in that's in the Constitution. Um, And yet what we're finding is now that we're always come crashing down. Right. The avenue through which these, you know, it's being criminalized. Right. Is around privacy and state surveillance and so on. So in some way, kind of, um, you know, perhaps inadvertently. Right. The avenue through which that lawsuit was won. Um, like turned out to hit on something quite real, actually, um, which I think is quite interesting. So where the tech companies, I think, are implicated, right? The first thing is, yes, um, you know, when when Roe came down, there was a there was a whole discussion about, um, you know, sort of after the Dobbs decision striking down Roe, there was this whole discussion about, oh, we're going back to pre-Roe. And I don't think we are. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is that the actual medical technology of abortion is very different now. Um, in the, you know, in the sixties, if you were going to get one, um, you know, surgical was your only option. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, and, and illegal abortion was going to be quite dangerous because it was going to involve an unlicensed surgical procedure. Um, now the vast majority of people, uh, who need an abortion will get a medical one where they take a pill. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a two pill dose and it, uh it's something in fact that will be you know very familiar to lots of people because take pills so take a pill is not something that you know is is a scary and unusual thing to do um so that's very different right um but it's also the case that we just live in a much more kind of mediated environment right than we used to so if you need to travel right to get hold of a pill or if you're getting one that's later term and you need to have a a surgical procedure, right? um, It used to be the case that you could travel and come back and there wouldn't really be any way short of somebody like following you in a car um, to know where you went and what it is that you did. Right. And, and now we all carry, um, you know, elaborate tracking devices in our pockets. And also like less in a less sinister way, it's just normal if you were going on a trip that you would post about it on Instagram and you would like text your friends with photos of what you were doing. And so it's it's much more complicated to go somewhere and not have any record of it. That would be almost in and of itself strange. So when you think about, uh, you know, a young person, perhaps a teenage girl who needs to get one somewhere out of state and is not comfortable telling her parents. Um, and says, well, I'm going on vacation or I'm going away with my friends to Vegas for the weekend or something, um, to come back without a record that looks like you actually went to Vegas for the weekend, like will raise suspicion, right? So um, so there's a whole um, you know, kind of the the digital apparatus of accessing abortion, I think is much more trackable, right? If you order pills on the web, there will be a, a history, right? A transaction history. Um associated with that. Um, and, you know, the really large tech companies are going to be implicated in some of this around kind of geo data, Facebook messages, things like that. Um, then there's also probably smaller companies that are involved in running the backend for websites where you might write mail order bills, right? Do we know who those are? Do the organizations, the abortion rights organizations that are running these services, right? to mail um, to mail the pill, at least for now, while it's still possible to do that. I'm aware that we're awaiting judgment in a Texas case um, that could complicate that further. Um, uh, you know, do they know who exactly is running the backend for their data like that? I think, um, do we have commitments from those companies about how they would respond to any kind of local or national, and I suspect that this would actually be local and state level, um, you know, demand for that information? Right. If you are a abortion provider who provides these services on a mail order basis or tries to reach people to travel out of state, like I think you want to be looking at that. Right. Where are your servers? Like this is something I think um that we ought to be thinking about. Um I, you know, because I knew that I was going to be talking to you, you know, yesterday I spoke to several friends and family who are in the medical profession. Um, that includes my sister. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that came across is, of course, now everybody's just telehealth, like, anyway, for everything, right? Um, and uh, and hospitals and doctor's offices are actually themselves much more tech-mediated. Um, you know, they keep patient records on a, some kind of digital service. They send emails to their patients. You, you probably perhaps haven't even done this from a GP's website that you can message your doctor and say, I need a renewal of my prescription. Um you know, who runs the back end for those services? There's a couple of companies that do these records for like every doctor's office in America. There's three or four companies that like that's their business. Um, you know, uh, those records are are HIPAA protected. Um, those companies themselves are probably HIPAA protected because that's what they do is they process patient records. Um, but they probably don't run their own like data services, right? So, I, I and I think a question that like I myself don't really, I write about tech companies and I don't know the, the legality of this, um, is how far down the kind of communication supply chain, so to speak, um, does a provision like HIPAA extend? And if it doesn't extend all the way down to kind of the backend data management companies, what commitments, you know, can be extracted from those companies? Um, and I think we should be trying to get those, you know, that, that, um, you know, kind of, kind of on the record. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's kind of the broad, right. Kind of tech companies, Um, uh, intersection. And then I think, as you say, there are those technologies that are really specific to this issue, things like period tracker apps, um, where, uh, you know, obviously that data, I think, is very particularly sensitive. And it's something I think people should perhaps be wary about using in this environment. Um, But again, right, those are companies, I think, who can be kind of asked to publicly commit.
0: Yeah, it's such a good point about like the infrastructure all the way down because, you know, because I, I look at cloud computing, a lot of people don't realize that their cloud computing provider is Amazon because there's so mm-hmm. layer of contracts in, in between. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's such a good point. And also about, yeah, health itself being more, the industry being more technologically mediated as well as our own mm-hmm. lives. Um, that kind of leads really well into my next question because, you know, kind of, saying goes, whatever the U.S. does, the U.K. is not far behind. Um, so, I mean, I guess to, to some of my friends who are, who are British, they think it's unimaginable that, you know, reproductive rights abortion rights could be challenged here, although obviously it has been illegal or was illegal in Northern Ireland for a very long time, up mm-hmm. until you know, just a couple. Very of recently. Yeah. So um, that's obviously... <laughs> not true um but uh, uh i guess from from your position in scotland especially like uh what do you think might happen in the uk and um how does uh the the having that centralized kind of nhs um state run um uh medical apparatus or industry change things um Especially because I did, I was reading the other day on Open Democracy report about the NHS's new contract with Palantir, which is obviously a Peter Thiel, uh, CIA-funded uh, data analytics company, um, private company that's that's getting a lot of sensitive pseudonymous uh, patient data. So, um, so kind of, what do you think is the the landscape in the UK, and then how does kind of having a a state uh, uh, healthcare industry change change it?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so a couple of couple of questions there. I'd, I'd actually written um, in the piece I think that we talked about the last time I was on this podcast that was about kind of tech companies more generally. Um, I think I made kind of brief mention to the point at which the when the NHS was shopping for a um, a data provider. You know, there there was um, a fair bit of controversy around um, you know using Google for that, right? Um, that it had been in conversation with Google, and there was. Right. I mean, of, of course, as you know, because you work on cloud computing, right, that this had been kind of something that like, actually did generate some public um, consternation about what happens if the NHS uses Google. Does that mean that records will actually leave uh, the UK? And if the records physically, right, if the servers are not hosted in the UK, and this is always the issue with cloud data, um, you know, under what data privacy regulations are, are those records governed? Right. And at that time, you know, the, the UK was still in the EU. So you were talking about European right, data privacy regulation, if these things move to a server in the US, right, what happens to those records, that was very controversial. So, um, and, and so I'm kind of surprised that after all of that, um, you know, they would still go with something like Palantir, given those concerns. So I think those concerns definitely um, exist, obviously, in a state-run health system, records are much more centralized. um, And, you know, that centralization and the NHS is not that far down that road, actually, because it's although it's a state provider, it's run as a collection of individual practices that are actually incorporated essentially as small businesses. Um, so it's it's much more public-private um than I think, you know, some other um state healthcare services uh in Europe. Um, but for example, you know, I lived for a time in Denmark. Um in, in Denmark, you get an ID card with your social security number. Um, and Uh, all of your medical records are indexed to that number. And not only does your GP have access to that, but if you walk into any pharmacy or any doctor's office anywhere in the country um, and you tap that card, they can see everything, which of course means that if you have like gone on vacation to another city and you are out of your prescription, you can just walk in and get it. Um, It's unbelievably convenient. Um, uh, But it does also mean that, you know, that record system, if that record system were ever compromised, Right. Um, you know, it, w- it will be huge, huge security risk. Um, and against that social security number is not only held everybody's health data, but everybody's financial data, everybody's mobile phone data. Right. Everything is connected to this one system, super centralized. And a lot of the Scandinavian, you know, kind of national ID systems work that way. Um, and for that reason, um, they manage their own systems. Um, They kind of have to, right, because it's almost a national security, um, you know, obligation Um, and would be interesting to see, but unlikely uh, to see kind of one of the Nordic states privatize that data infrastructure because of how kind of connected um, it is. I think the thing that, you know, is that people I think maybe don't appreciate in the UK or in other European countries is that in a lot of European countries, the law is not that it's specifically legalized. Right. But that it was kind of selectively decriminalized so that it's not legal, but it is legal in kind of extreme conditions. So in fact, the way that it works in the UK um, is that you, you know, you have to you have to have a doctor sign off that that it would be in some way, you know, kind of medically harmful to you to go through with. the Pregnancy, right now, that is quite permissively enforced, right? You go to your GP, you say that you want one. Um you explained why you can't go through with the pregnancy. it on you off. Um, but a government coming in that wanted to take the letter of the law very seriously, right. Could enforce it much more strictly. And in fact, the place where you saw that was there's um, one of the German uh, sub-national, you know, German has, Germany has a federal system. One of the German States had a quite right-leaning government come in um, where they decided to enforce the letter of, Germany's law much more strictly um, than it ever had been. And lots of people discovered overnight um, that abortion was not as legal as they thought it was, um, and then had to organize to get that uh, you know, overturned. And so their laws actually become more liberal in that area, um, only because it suddenly became a live kind of issue. Um, so so that's sort of where, right. Um, I think I think that is and then the other thing about the UK is you know I'm talking to you from Scotland um where uh you know uh Nicola Sturgeon has recently stepped down as the leader of the SNP, and effectively um you know as as first Minister of Scotland um her party is selecting a new leader in a parliamentary system that person will at least in the short term right become the the new first Minister of Scotland um until there's new kind of elections for the the Scottish Parliament um and one of the you know, one of the three candidates and, and, and one of the, the two who seems to be really in the running um, for the role uh, is a young woman named Kate Forbes um, she's in her early 30s and is a member of um, the Free Church of Scotland, which is a kind of evangelical splinter group of kind of mainstream Scottish Presbyterianism um, that has quite conservative views on not only abortion, um, but, you know, sort of LGBT rights. Um, you know uh extramarital sex but all kinds of stuff i mean really really quite um quite conservative and that's made the news um in part because she's been very clear that you know those religious views would inform right her her voting and her her political um leadership and one of the things that um you know and in the wake of her running there's been more kind of anti-abortion protesting outside of medical facilities um Uh, here in Scotland, um, the main hospital in Glasgow has had a group of protesters outside it um, for about a month now, um, doing uh, a a Lenten protest that they call, you know, 40 days for life. So they're going to be there until Easter. Um, And the doctors at the hospital have asked for counter protesters not to go because counter protesters just raise the heat level. um, And that's even more you know, traumatic for the patients, and um, certainly having done work outside clinics, I you know I do understand, um, and and I do think that the you know the Kate Forbes campaign is is elevating um, that that kind of language. But I think the thing that's really interesting about the U.S. U.K. link there um, is, and I did not know this until she came into the news, and then I read a good piece in the LRB, which we can also uh, link to perhaps in the show notes um, about the history of her particular denomination. Um, which it turned out splintered off uh from the mainline kind of Presbyterian Church of Scotland in the eighteen forties um and you know over um you know uh not issues related to this right what you know other um contested issues in the church at the time um but uh received funding uh for that split from um american evangelical presbyterians who were largely concentrated in the american south this is the american south before the civil war um and a lot of them were slaveholders um and so there's this kind of a long-standing um kind of relationship between the american and british kind of christian right um and you do find not only on um on, you know kind of anti-abortion activism but also um, and we might we don't want to get into this um, around kind of anti-trans activism that is taking place um, in the UK and, and in the US that there are um, increasingly these funding uh, and and networking uh, links um that that go back you know quite quite a long way.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating and it's perfect because you've preempted my next question. Um, which is you know it's really striking being in the UK as an American um, because there is this like huge anti-trans movement which is mm-hmm. labeling itself as kind of a, a branch of feminism um, and obviously there are debates about whether they are generally fem- genuinely feminists or not or how the wider feminist movement would would relate to them um, but uh, it it is interesting because in the US, you, you think these, these at least my experience has been these things kind of go together, right? That mm-hmm. if you are for abortion rights, if you are a feminist, you're also pro-LGBT, you're also pro-trans rights, you know, all these kind of progressive, socially progressive things get bunched together. Whereas here, um, it's a bit, I always feel a bit like confused about who ends up having anti-trans rhetoric because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to sometimes um Fit in the way that I, I think about in the U.S. That might be a perspective issue, so we can uh, debate. But I wonder, do, do you think there is that split within yeah. the U.K. and and U.S. Um, feminist yeah. movements? Does that explain why kind of like transphobia seems to have more of a quote unquote mainstream yeah. foothold here than than I yeah. think in the U.S.? So
1: this is something I think about a lot, um, and you know, um, again, you know, here in in Scotland. Um, uh, you know there has been uh, a kind of a resurgent wave of um of anti-trans organizing in a backlash to right the the Scottish government's um uh you know effort to pass a, a law um liberalizing right the process for um uh you know getting your your legal sex marker changed on your um on your government documents um and um, you know, it's it's funny. I went down to the there was a, a anti trans protest, and I went down to the counter demonstration this was about a month ago. Um, you know, with, with a sign that said "Radical Feminist for Trans Rights." Um, and and in a UK context, that gets a lot of questions. Um, but I, you know, but I want, but I, but I, but I own it, and I think it's important actually um, to to articulate this. Um, that you know, we have this term, right? Trans exclusionary radical feminist, right? Term. Um, And that term was coined by other radical feminists um, to distinguish this particular tendency as a fringe tendency within kind of the second wave broadly of the feminist movement. Um, And I think one of the things that is distinct about the UK is that that particular tendency was overrepresented in the British second wave um, in a way where it was quite marginal in the kind of American second wave, the French second wave, and these were the other kind of centers of, of academic and, you know, kind of feminist theory at that time. Um, so that here, uh, you know, it is a kind of accurate reflection of what the second wave was like in the UK. Um, but I also think the second wave in the UK was kind of underdeveloped. Um, so that British feminist militancy peaks in the first wave. Um, and, and that we should credit that the first wave in the UK is genuinely militant. Um, properly radical, blowing up those boxes, and you know, uh, I mean, they threw a cleaver at the prime minister on one occasion. Um uh, you know, uh separatists were a seriously a radical group of people. Um and then after that, um, there's not the same level of militancy uh in the second wave. Um and in part because of that, uh, you know, I think some of these things were not worked through kind of at that time. Um, and also, and because I think, um, you know, abortion rights was not really litigated in the same way. Um, it was kind of softly, partially decriminalized without ever really being legalized. That was not a real um, battle about that. Um, you know, sexual harassment law did not move forward. Um, so that. And and so now you have a situation where um, the kind of trans exclusionary people who claim to speak as feminists do in some way speak for what was the British second wave. Um, And that's a real problem. Um, But we're countering that with a kind of third wave liberal feminism. Um, That's a little wet. Um, And, you know, it, it feels a bit like taking a knife to a gunfight. Um, to fight something that that is, you know, kind of a resurgent proto-fascism armed with, you know, kind of liberal I choose my choice. I don't think that's going to get us there. And for that reason, I think we need to revive um, a re- the, the broad, what was the broad mainstream of second wave radical feminism, which wasn't trans exclusionary at all. Um, and I think there is interesting work um, being done, for example, by Amya Srinivasan at Oxford um, to kind of really read right those texts in a different in a different way
0: yeah I, I wonder too it's so interesting because it seems to me right that um but so I was in a, like in a seminar recently and I was talking about like different strands of feminist literature one is one of the strands of feminist literature is where you know gender is sort of almost abolished as a category mm-hmm. right we, we really rethink what it means to to have gender right like our slow wins kind of like gender fluidity and Mm -hmm. and things and then there's a second strand of literature which is about segregation and and so it's interesting to me things like Margaret Atwood whose book is really about reproductive rights but has definitely come out with some anti-trans comments um where it seems to me that there's two kind of ways to thinking about um gender so I wonder for you like linking it back trans rights seems to be about bodily autonomy, right? Which Mm -hmm. links very well um, to thinking about like the right to abortion. So like are these two things kind of complementary? How do you how do you um how do you think about the kind of core issue um underlying it and 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 can we think about gender as a as a kind of overarching category when we also think about the the oppression of
1: women? Yeah. So I mean here's the way, here's the way that I come to this. I I do sort of have a pretty unreconstructed radical view um, of, you know, gender as a like a set of hierarchical categories that's um, like imposed on people who just have bodies. Um, uh, and it's not a gender sex binary. I mean, I think if you actually go and read, you know, kind of serious second wave radical feminism, not of, you know, of a trans inclusive variety. Right. I mean, it, it sex is also socially constructed. Always. Um, uh, I think that that points you towards the ultimate overthrow of patriarchy and all of the other oppressions that follow from it. I'll come to that in a second, um, does involve ultimately abolition, right? Um, but while we're here, right, in the meantime, uh, gender and sex are both real things in the world that people have to navigate, um, And the principle on which we allow people to navigate that has to be unconditional bodily autonomy. So in some way, you know, the kind of metaphysical answer um, is academically interesting to me, but I don't think it actually in any way should condition, right, um, the way that we think about, you know, people's right to have unconditional bodily autonomy and access to medical care that's relevant to that. And I think that is a through line that ties kind of trans rights and abortion rights together um, very closely. Um, Chase Strangio, who is the, um, one of the lawyers at the ACLU who has been doing a lot of the ACLU's work on trans rights cases in the U S wrote a very good piece recently that again, we probably can link to in the show notes, um, about, you know, kind of how these things are, are linked. But for me, that's kind of, um, that's the through line now in terms of the way that like the systems of oppression are themselves, I think related, right. A uh, canonical radical feminist understanding, um, is that sort of. Patriarchy, right? Oppression on the axes of gender and sex predates all of the forms of oppression. It's the first way that, you know, humans in in their like earliest human settlements um, worked out how to organize themselves into categories. Um, And the argument would be that as soon as you start organizing people into categories, those categories are inherently unequal. That relationship is always in some way hierarchical. Um, Other things, class, Homophobia, racism, all of these other things flow from that. That's that's kind of canonical radical feminism. Um, now, what that means is that patriarchy exists to create, a, you know, a subordinated category of coerced reproductive labor. It creates it creates that category from those people who have the anatomy that allows them to perform reproductive labor. Uh, It creates that category prior to assigning a name to that group of people, which means that we can assign whatever name we want to that group of people. Again, this is why it shouldn't matter. Um, And there's no, there isn't a tension here, I think, that you're right, that I think that transphobes want there to be. Um, Once that category exists, it not only oppresses all the people that are assigned into it, it oppresses all the people that cannot be assigned into it. And that's the way in which homophobia and transphobia emerge from patriarchal oppression. And everything has its root, right, in this impetus for reproductive control. So that's the way that I would kind of cover that. And what that means for kind of a very trans-inclusive abortion rights activism is I tend to use kind of like women and people with uteruses language, um, which means that when you're talking about who needs access to the service, right, you want to be inclusive and make clear that that does not just include women, right? Includes cis women, trans men, many non-binary people. When we talk about why are these services under assault, right? Then I think you want to name clearly that the reason they're under assault is misogyny. That this is an effort to coerce the reproductive labor of a group of people uh, whom we have decided to call women, even if not all of them are. Right? That's a choice we made. and it's a choice we can change, right? So, so a, a serious radical feminist understanding would say all the labels are arbitrary. We made them up. We could change them anytime.
0: I wonder too. So, we talk about different axes of oppression. Um, so, there's the sort of like gender gender inclusivity, but there's also race. Um, and so, I've been reading um, recently Malcolm Harris's book Palo Alto. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a thick book on the history of of Silicon Valley. Very, very good. But um, you know, one of the things. Um, that it, it really emphasizes and it brings up is like right like Stanford and the tech Silicon Valley is you know so deeply embedded with the eugenics movement um California I've said this before on this podcast many times California has a huge forced sterilization program which is you know very linking these ideas of, of race and as you say the patriarchy control of reproductive labor um and so that's that's something that happened Historically, but now too, you know, I talk to people in Silicon Valley and, you know, somehow eugenics in the form of AI is making a comeback. We see that with Elon Musk being really obsessed with birth. So, so I wonder, um, you know, we've talked sort of about like the tech companies and that like me, the technology is a mediating infrastructure and it almost seems like accidental that they've, they've stumbled upon this power. But, um, how do, do you think ideologically being this kind of epicenter of eugenics has has changed um or has affected things and and how we should think about um like what Silicon Valley is up to in the context of 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 reproduction of, of reproductive rights and gender rights, as well as kind of the racism that's really baked into all of this as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean a couple of thoughts, right? I mean I think the I think the first thing is um you know they're certainly uh, like deep, I think, in kind of the culture of um, the tech industry. And I think we've we've both written about this, um, you know, uh, a belief. And I think that a lot of kind of technological um, like innovation historically, right, people who have been involved in that at, at various points in different kind of technological paradigm shifts, um, you know, best the technology with um, the hope of some kind of human perfectibility, right? Um, and, and that's been true about kind of breakthrough technologies, right. Um, at at many historical periods, um, but of course around kind of medicine and science, I mean, not only obviously there are these kind of eugenicist, right. Um, uh, relationships, um, that, that have been kind of written about historically, but it's also, I think, um, like a real desire to be very hopeful about, um, you know, digital technologies that allow us to kind of like mediate our medical relationships now, whether that's kind of period tracker apps, whether that's, you know, all the podcasts I listen to seem to be sponsored uh, by, you know, services to get therapy over the web, to get, you know, meditation over the web, to get, you know, um, medicine mailed to you over the web, that that sort of, um, and obviously implicit in that is forfeiting a huge amount of your medical data um to these apps where again we have a lot of questions about who is the cloud provider um you know at the back end so um so that's the place where i think kind of tech culture is implicated in that it has driven many of us to seed right lots of lots of data that now suddenly becomes sensitive in an environment where right access whether it's access and you know since since we've kind of folded these issues in, right, whether it's access to abortion care or whether it's access to, you know, kind of gender-affirming transition-related care in places where that's under assault, um, right? I mean, all of the questions that we raised about traveling out of state for an abortion, I mean, I think they apply to somebody who's traveling out of state for puberty blockers, right, or surgery. Um, uh, What happens, right, when that kind of thing gets criminalized? But then I also think there's a racial dimension, right, that's separate from the tech to who gets criminalized, right? So in an environment where anything is being criminalized, right? in the United States in particular, we should be aware that who gets criminalized is disproportionately people of color. Um, In the context of something like abortion, where one of the ways that you could be prosecuted is that you have a miscarriage, right? And the miscarriage is treated as though it's suspicious. Um, The treatment, medical treatment for a miscarriage that your body doesn't evacuate, right? is a surgical abortion. That's what they do. Um, otherwise, you know, the patient dies because you have something septic inside of you. Um, we already know, right, that miscarriage treatment um, is much worse um, for black women, right, than it is for everybody else. Um, maternal health care rates are, you know, already, there's already a, a, you know, a racial problem there, right? A gap. Um, and in treatment, right? That's the result of a racist medical system. So in that context, right, who is likely to be criminalized? Um, when you layer on top of that, right, a racially unequal criminal justice system, um, I think there's, you know, there are reasons to be concerned about who will be targeted, um, right, by by some of these laws. Then I think there's kind of an intersection of, um, of you know, sort of race and economic inequality um, that means that we should be thinking about Uh, where we had digital solutions to being able to get access to treatment, access to information about treatment, um, and so on, right? Who has access to technology, right? That might raise certain intersectional questions. Um, But I also think there's a danger of overthinking that. So one of the things that happened right after Dobbs came down, where there were all of these articles saying, you know, it's going to be mostly poor Black women who are affected by this. And that is who is going to be affected the worst. That's absolutely true. But I think that articles like that, um, send a dangerous signal to you know middle class um you know reasonably secure white women that this will not affect them um and we cannot afford right for people to think that it couldn't be them um so from an organizing perspective right I want all hands on deck um and that's sometimes in tension with where my kind of commitments as an academic and an analyst lie um, that I think you can over nuance this to the point where some people think that it doesn't affect them. And in fact, we need everybody on the line. I mean, we touched on this a little bit with, with kind of the relationship to anti-trans organizing. um, But I think that, you know, kind of historically, um, you know, efforts to police gender, um, whether that's kind of restricting reproductive rights, um, uh, you know, of, cis women and trans men or whether that's kind of you know restricting the access to gender affirming care for trans people. Um and I do think these things go together. Um that these are early warning bellwethers historically, right, for a broader kind of far-right push and for a resurgent fascism. Um, and I think we should be calling this fascism. Um, and and I think one of the one of the lessons that is relevant to kind of the tech industry of the last kind of couple of decades is that the early warning sign for the kind of the new far right organizing that was taking place on the web right um the first sign that there really was a problem um was the rise in kind of misogynistic hate speech um on right kind of far right forums um it was the attack on female journalists that became gamergate um and it was the um the uh the mass shooting um uh you know the Elliot rogers shooting at the um at, at the sorority in in California um and right up until he shot up the sorority um lots of otherwise progressive people that i knew who were interested in digital media um thought the misogynistic far right speech was just speech and at that time, I was working as a journalist still, um, and women in tech and media were saying very clearly, look, this Gamergate thing, it seems kind of silly, but actually there's something, something really dark is happening in certain corners of the internet, and they're coming for women now, but they'll come for everybody next. Um, and I think one of the things that we do need to grapple with um, is that women's rights in particular are, I think, seen as like somehow a deeply uncool. Uh, space to be organizing in. Um, I mean, I talk about abortion rights all the time, and people think it's kind of tedious. Um, I don't really understand why, but they do. Um, and I think we need to get over that because they're actually the front line, um, you know, behind which everything else sits. Um, in part because, um, you know, a, a you know a, a radical feminist analysis would say we built all the other oppression on top of
0: So. Kind of looking forward, what do you think is uh, the best way or method of resisting? Um, where should this kind of activist activism and organizing happen?
1: So a couple of things, and I think thinking about this in an international context, um, you know, on the one hand, I think one of the things that's really hopeful in a U.S. context is that the medical professional bodies are strongly politicized. Um, And are, you know, advocating, right, very, um, very aggressively kind of against what's happening around both reproductive rights um, and kind of gender affirming care that you have sort of the American Pediatric Association, the American Endocrine Association, the Gynecological Association, all coming out and saying, like, we need the ability to provide these treatments. This is essential medicine. This is what we do. You're interfering with our ability to provide care. Um, They're mobilizing. I think that in some ways it's a good thing and it's something that would be difficult to imagine happening. Um, in a, in a scenario, for example, where the medical profession were more closely associated with the state. Um, on the other hand, I think one of the things that came out from talking, um, you know, to, to my sister and other doctors, um, is that we're seeing, um, medical practitioners, uh, afraid to go and practice in those states, right? Because they could be prevented from delivering essential care. If they deliver it, they themselves could be prosecuted. Um, and that means, aside from these particular treatments that are under assault, um, that there's whole areas of medical care that then we're underserving those communities. Um, so we need to be thinking about how we're going to deal with that, right? Uh, there need to be OB-GYN practitioners and, you know, uh, um, you know, pediatric transition specialists and so on in all of these states. Um how are we going to ensure that those people are able to continue practicing? Um, because there's a, a training and service gap that's developing. Um, even as I do think it's hopeful that doctors are fighting this, um, I think we need to be thinking about the pipeline. I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, the other thing I think we need to be doing is, in part, because we cannot look back to the 60s, um, it's going to run differently in this digital environment. I think we should be spending a lot of time researching and reading about um, abortion rights movements that have been successful like a new in kind of digital era. So here I'm thinking about, we should be paying a lot of attention to what happened in the Republic of Ireland. Um, there's a number of Latin American countries that have legalized abortion rights in this era, right? Um, and where it's grown out of a broader feminist movement um, that was particularly focused on on sexual violence, um, we should be trying to figure out how they have organized you know, in a digital environment. Um, and... Again, and those are, you know, these are all countries in which they've been organizing in the face of a um, a very well-organized, you know, religiously affiliated anti-abortion movement that has the machinery, right, often of the Catholic Church behind it. So, um, So I think we could be learning a lot more from those movements rather than thinking about going back to the past in our own country's history. I think that's not so relevant given how digital everything is.